Hey folks, and welcome to episode 178 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, Alistair Roberts is going to be joined by John Barich to discuss the text for All Saints Day in 2018. John Barich is a good friend of Theopolis and is the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Sulphur, Louisiana. He taught our Pentecost term course earlier this year on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and also has an excellent talk on episode 79 of the podcast on the relationship between liturgy and preaching. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to another episode of the Theopolis podcast. Today I'm joined by John Barrich. Um, Peter Lightheart is away, traveling at the moment, and this week's readings we're going to go through Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3, and Revelation 7, verses 2 to 17. And good to start us off, John is going to introduce the Beatitudes. Pleasure to be here again. Matthew 5, of course, is jumping into the middle of a story in which Jesus has been, he's come to Galilee and he has been preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing people, and a crowd has gathered to him, we're told, and we're told the regions from which they gathered, um, which, if you look at them on the map, turn out to be north, south, east, and west. So people have come, a kind of representative Israel from all the four corners of, of the land, following Jesus now to a mountain. It's not Sinai, it's not any other famous mountain, a mountain associated with Moses or anyone like that. This is going to be Jesus' mountain. Frequently in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus goes to the mountain. So they follow Jesus, and he is going to be sitting at the mountain teaching them. He's not just a new Moses here, he is also Yahweh giving... Uh, giving the law, um, Yahweh building a house, a people house, with with rules for the people, um, is in fact at the uh, at the mountain. Yahweh gives Moses instructions not just for the house of Israel, but particularly for the tabernacle, building the tabernacle. And there are some hints of that even here. Jesus is going to talk about salt about light, a lampstand, and about the law, all things that we associate with the, uh, the tabernacle. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to end with two houses, one of them built on sand and the other built on Jesus and his sayings. And that's the house that can withstand judgment, he says. But I think it's important as we come to these Beatitudes then, as we come to this sermon, that we see it in the context that Matthew gives it to us in, which is a context that tells us but the Sermon on the Mount is gospel. I think too often people think of the Sermon on the Mount because it's, it's related to Moses' law in some parts, and because Jesus gives a bunch of commandments, we think, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is law. But Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, that Jesus went about teaching in the synagogues, heralding the good news of the kingdom and healing. And then in Matthew 9, he's going to say that Jesus went about teaching the synagogues, heralding the good news of the kingdom, and healing. 
And in between Matthew 4 and Matthew 9, we've got the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching. And we've got Matthew 8 and 9, which is stories about healing. And so Matthew is setting us up here to see the Sermon on the Mount as kind of an epitome of Jesus' teaching. And what Jesus is doing when he's teaching is heralding the good news of the kingdom, particularly as the kingdom is near, near in time. The kingdom is going to be established in that generation. And then when Jesus actually begins the sermon, what we find is not, first of all, a bunch of commandments. It's not be meek, be merciful, and so on. It's beatitudes. It's, it's a declaration of good news. Good news that certain people are blessed, and they're blessed because they're going to inherit the kingdom of the heavens with all of its benefits. And the kingdom of the heavens is not heaven itself. You don't go to heaven to get these benefits. That's not the point. It's that heaven and earth are coming together again. Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses does. Moses goes up to get a blueprint to bring back down to earth. And Jesus is on the mountain giving heaven's blueprints, the kingdom of heaven's blueprints, as it were, to the people gathered around him. The kingdom of the heavens is heaven's pattern being, being imprinted upon the earth. It's all the things the prophets have foretold, but the nations coming to hear God's word. It's God being acknowledged as king, the world beginning to obey him, the world being renewed under his loving care. Um, and, and, of course, God overthrowing the wicked and establishing his people. So the Beatitudes are a declaration that certain people are most happy. They're the ones who are in the best possible position at this moment in time. They're the ones that you want to be. You want to be like that. And in particular, you find that it's the, the downtrodden, the persecuted, those who are mourning over Israel's current state, and so on, who are actually the most happy because things are about to change. Jesus is going to establish the kingdom, and things are about to change for these faithful people. Um, there's, there's more I can say, but I want to turn it over to you, Alistair, if you've got any, any thoughts at this point. The theme of blessing and cursing is very prominent in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and is associated with covenant sanction. And in the book of Matthew, we have something that serves as a juxtaposition to this in chapter 23, where we see a series of woes which correspond quite closely to the Beatitudes. So for each blessed, there is a woe to you. We have blessed are the poor in spirit, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And corresponding to that, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are entering, those enter who are trying to. And as you go through each one of these woes, you'll see that there is a, a correspondence with a with the respective blessing in that particular order. And as you get to the end, what you see is this judgment upon those who have persecuted the prophets, taking up the themes that we see, particularly in the final three verses of this section. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, etc. And this challenge at a point in history, whereas before you have this more hypothetical statement, you will be blessed if you do this, you'll be cursed if you do this, now you have specific bodies of people that are identified as being blessed and cursed, as having um, blessing coming their way and woe coming their way. 
And this situation in history is a very charged one. Talked about the situation of an imprint of heaven, the context of the building of the house. And here we have judgment coming upon a house that corresponds to this, the judgment upon Israel's house that will be left to them desolate on account of their sins, the blood that has filled it up. And so reading these two things alongside each other, I think, helps to understand a lot of the punch of the book of, of Matthew and of these Beatitudes particular, particularly. These Beatitudes are not just nice sayings, but they stand as a counterpart to a judgment that will fall upon another group of people. And the last public teaching that Jesus has is within these woes. And the first recorded public teaching in Matthew is in the Beatitudes. And so they very much provide bookends for the greater message of Christ and the mission that he he brings. The theme of poverty and mourning and lack and hungering and thirsting. These things have a certain degree of a concrete material um, reference. In Luke's gospel, that becomes a bit more clear where it's not blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are the poor. And that relationship between being poor in spirit and being poor is one that plays out in various ways within the gospel, whether that's referring to the danger facing the rich who cannot give up their wealth and will struggle to enter the kingdom of heaven, or whether it's referring to the poor people that receive Christ gladly. There is a relationship between these concepts without a complete identification, and it's interesting to explore the way that this works out within the Gospels and how we are to read the the Beatitudes in a way that sees blessing upon people whose condition within the society, according to their peers, would have been one characterised by lack, poverty, would have been characterised by a lack of status and dignity within the society. But it's those very same people that Christ can see as the blessed. And so the shock of this passage should not be missed. There is a an arresting statement being made here, one that goes against many of our assumptions, certainly the assumptions of the day, about who really are the blessed people in this juncture in history. As they're facing this coming judgment, who are the people in the camp of the blessed? Yes, I think, as you say, it's shocking. And I think it's shocking also because Israel, or certainly many people in Israel, certainly the Pharisees, would have thought, blessed is Israel because Israel is going to inherit the kingdom. And the Pharisees would have said, blessed are, are we, of course, who are faithful, those who keep our traditions and so on. We are in the best possible position to inherit the kingdom. But it's kind of expected that all Israel is going to inherit the blessing. But when John comes, and, and Jesus has the same message, when they announce that the kingdom of the heavens is near, they don't say, rejoice because the kingdom of, heaven, of the heavens is near. They say, repent. All Israel needs to repent. Things aren't right for everybody in Israel right now. Um, it's not as if it's automatic that everyone's going to inherit. I think, well, there's something outside of our text, that's part of the point that often gets missed in the, uh, the end of the Sermon on the Mount with the two houses. We think that uh, the man who built his house in the sand is really foolish because who would build a house on the sand? Of course he would build on the rock. But in Israel, it's the other way around. Building on the sand is the normal thing to do. 
digging all the way down to the bedrock, which is how it's put in Luke's gospel in particular, but, but digging all the way down is the kind of thing that you would do only if you're expecting a huge storm. And Jesus is trying to tell Israel that there is a huge storm coming. There is a big judgment coming, and Israel is not ready for it. And they need to they need to repent. And there are certain people in Israel, not not Israel automatically inheriting all the blessings of the kingdom, but certain people in Israel who are going to be inheriting. And as you said, Elisha, they're the ones that they're kind of unexpected, the ones that you wouldn't necessarily associate with with blessedness or being in the best possible position to inherit. The rich you think might. The rich have the rich young ruler is a man who's got a chunk of land, property, and probably property just been in his family for years. Of course you wouldn't want to give that up. You know, that's that's associated with, with blessing from God in the old covenant. And to to do the kind of thing, really the kind of thing that Paul does is unthinkable to the rich young ruler. Unless, of course, as some people have proposed, the rich young ruler is Paul. Um, but at that moment in his, in his life, the rich young ruler is not willing to give up the signs of blessing, that, the, the things he would have associated with blessing in, under the old covenant. But Paul has to do that. Paul has to lose everything. Literally. I mean, he, he's saying that, writing from prison, when he's writing to the Philippians, he lost everything for Christ. He, he gave up all the privilege, all the status that he had to serve Christ. And that, that became a reality for many people in Israel at that time. They got kicked out of the synagogues. They lost family ties. They gave up all kinds of things. And those are the ones that Jesus is declaring are truly in the best possible position because they're going to inherit the kingdom. Jesus' emphasis at the end on the connection between his disciples and the prophets that preceded them is one that I think rewards closer attention, that it's that particular tradition, that tradition of persecution that Christ identifies with, not, as we might presume, the tradition of blessings and cursings upon the people as they are faithful within the land and the expectation that there will be... uh, those who experience the greatest accumulation of riches and other things like that, that those are the true blessed people. Identifying with the tradition of the prophets brings into the picture something very different, um, something about the way that the prophets are ordered towards the future, that they are waiting this moment in history there were, where there will be an apocalyptic breaking in and disruption of the current order. So that the current order, which is corrupt and wicked and where the righteous are um, suffering and the wicked are prospering, that that will be overturned. And that connection with the prophets is one that is drawn out throughout the whole of the book of Matthew and elsewhere in the Gospels. This connection with the prophets and the disciples is seen in the way that they are sent on a mission to different towns and villages and the way that they provide a test of hospitality wherever they go. Will they be received or will they be rejected? And that test is also one that's connected with the blood that is shed from righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And the disciples of Christ fall in that line. Christ following after John the Baptist is again significant that Christ takes up the baton of the prophet and he completes that mission. Um, he's the one who comes as the son to the wicked vine dressers. 
And that tradition is one that helps us to understand our position, not as one that's defined merely by the degree to which we're suffering or prospering, and that that is the true gauge of our of how blessed we are before God, but that frames our current situation against the horizon of the coming day, the day when God's going to intervene in history and set things right. Yes, of course, the Beatitudes themselves are picking up on things in the prophets, particularly Isaiah 61, um, Isaiah 66 as well. A poor in spirit comes from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build me? On this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Um, so the, the one who is going to be in the future, the house of God, is the one who is poor in spirit. Um, Isaiah 61, the, the spirit of Yahweh God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then immediately after that we get to heal the broken heart of those of the mourners. Um, and there's a number of echoes of Isaiah 61 throughout these Beatitudes. In Isaiah 61, they're mourning and brokenhearted because of what's happened to Israel. Because God's people are, are needy, they're captives, they're imprisoned, um, they're in exile because of Israel's sins and idolatry. Uh, they've gone so far in that context that, that they're blind and deaf to God's word and God's work. And they've got wicked kings and greedy shepherds, and that's why the people are mourning. But the servant has come, the servant of Yahweh has come, with the, anointed with the Spirit, to heal the brokenhearted. And it, says, it goes on to say, to comfort all who mourn, Isaiah 61. To console those who mourn in Zion by opening the doors of the prison to those who are bound, by proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, all those kinds of things in that context. Uh, think of Ezekiel 9 also, where Yahweh sends out a man to go through the midst of the city, and this is going to tie in with, with Revelation 7 as well, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Everyone's going to be slaughtered except the ones who have this mark, Ezekiel 9. And the slaughter starts at the sanctuary because the deepest grief in Israel, the deepest problem in Israel is that worship is corrupt, the worship of God. And so, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, it doesn't mean just anybody who's crying about anything. In particular, this prophetic context is to say there are, there are people who are doing what John said to do. They are repenting, not just for their own personal sins, but for the whole situation of Israel, for the sins of Israel, for the way worship is corrupt in Israel, uh, the way Israel has corrupt kings, greedy shepherds, blind watchmen. And, and a classic example of somebody who's mourning like that is Simeon. In Luke 2, he's described as waiting for the comfort of Israel. He's waiting for Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. He's waiting for Isaiah 40 to be fulfilled. And the comfort, the comfort really, and that's the theme that comes up even in connection with the slaughter of the, uh, of the infants in Matthew 2. Um, Rachel refusing to be comforted. Well, what would comfort her? What would comfort her is the restoration of what was lost. In that context, it's been quoted there from Jeremiah, Rachel's weeping because her offspring are going away into exile. And the comfort is the return from exile. It's the same thing we find in Isaiah 61, coming back from exile, given, being given the oil of joy for mourning. 
the garment of praise, the spirit of heaviness. Um, all that joy comes about because God is going to change the whole situation of, of Israel, of, of Judah in exile. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that marks up the church now is that though we, though we mourn, we also recognize that the great change has happened, that Jesus has brought about the blessedness that Matthew is speaking of here, um, that though we mourn as a church still over our sins, joy becomes the dominant note. There's much more that can be said about the prophets, of course, here all through these Beatitudes. I don't know how long we've been on that, but it's, it's worthwhile going through some of them and seeing some of the connections. I think we should probably move on at this point to First John chapter 3, which takes up many of these similar themes, the antagonism between the world and the children of God. And within that broader context from verse 28 of chapter 2 to um, the end of chapter 3, we see this, or particularly verse 15 of chapter 3, we see this juxtaposition of the children of God and the children of the devil, how they are made manifest and how the children of God reflect the character of God. So we've seen in Matthew 5 the way that we are, as it were, children of the prophets. We're those who walk in the footsteps of the prophets. We've also been told that we will be called children of God if we are, um, if we are those who are peacemakers. And that's a very strong contrast with what we see in the case of the devil. The devil is a murderer from the beginning. He's the one who hates the brother. Whereas the children of God are characterized by love for each other, by love for their brethren and by love for God. And this revelation of who we are is something that is awaiting the future. But this revelation that is awaiting us in the future is also one that, provo that provokes activity here and now. That as we have this hope in ourselves, we will purify ourselves. When you look at chapter, verse 2 of this particular passage, it's interesting to recognize the logic of it, that there is a logic of transfiguration, that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's the vision of Christ that transforms us. And we have a sense of this in various contexts where we see something remarkably beautiful, and there's a way in which we can be transfigured by beauty, even for a briefest moment of time. You can see people who are witnessing a moment of beauty and they're awestruck. Their faces soften. They lose the hardness and the cynicism and the, all these other things wash away from their face and their faces become beautiful for a moment of time. And that is but a barest reflection, of illustration of what it means for us to see Christ when he appears. We have this logic in the context of 2 Corinthians first chapter 4, where Paul talks about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and how God's light shining in that place is something that transfigures us, that changes us, and that we are transformed from glory to glory. Likewise, as we await Christ, we are those who the world will not know. There is this opposition between the light and the darkness, between the children of God and the children of the evil one. And this failure of the world to know us, to grasp hold of us, to apprehend us is similar to that failure of the world to understand our Lord. This character that we have is one that 
betrays the reality that we are children of God. As we are children of God, the world will treat us in a way that corresponds to the way that they treated Christ, that we have that characteristic. And so family likeness is a very strong theme throughout this particular section of First John. The contrast between the family likeness of the people of God and the family likeness of those who are the children of the evil one. There's also a nice connection with the Beatitudes here uh, that can be drawn out. In particular, the Beatitude, you mentioned the, uh, the peacemakers are called children of God, but also the Beatitude that says, blessed are the, are the pure in heart, that they shall see God. And here, the promise, we shall see him as he is, is what motivates us. Verse 3 says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Um, and and that, that Beatitude even draws on Psalm 24, who may ascend to Yahweh's mountain, who may stand in his holy place, the clean of hands and pure of heart. And the pure of heart there is the one who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, who has not sworn a falsehood, who is not swearing oaths to the other gods and all the time trying to draw near to Yahweh. Um, so the pure of heart, we sometimes think of pure means, pure means clean, and we might think of that in terms of of sexual sin, of being defiled with sin, or something like that. But often in the Bible, the, the purity of heart has to do with being single-minded, single-focused. In James 4, it's the double-minded who are called upon to purify their hearts. So to be pure is the opposite of being double-minded. Double-mindedness involves uh, wanting to be friends with the world and with God. That's something that John's going to pick up on as well. Um, but James says that you are adulterers and adulteresses because they want to be friends with the world and with God. And in James, the spirit is jealous that you stop serving to God and you are pure in heart. You're focused only on God. The purity of heart in, in Scripture is, it involves being single-minded, wholeheartedly devoted to God, not, not partially devoted to God and partially devoted to yourself or to other gods, um, it has to do with integrity, uh, the desire to please God above all else, um, to will one thing, to be faithful to God. And in Psalm 24, those who are clean of hands and pure of heart, they're the ones who get to ascend to Yahweh's mountain and stand in his holy place. Uh, they're the ones who receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness uh, from the God of their salvation. The purity of, of heart there in Psalm 24 is, is closely tied with seeking the face of God, wanting to draw near to God, to go up into God's holy mountain. And then Jesus, of course, picks up on this in the Beatitude, that those who are pure of heart get what they want. They get to see God. They are single-heartedly focused on him, and they get to see him. They get exactly what they want. And, and John is picking up on that here in, uh, in 1 John 3. And he says, in the future, when he's revealed, we're going to see him as he is. We get to see God. And if we have that hope, then we need to be those who are pure of heart. We need to purify ourselves. We need to get rid of the, the other things um, that make us double-minded, the other, the other allegiances, and so on, so that we are focused upon, upon him. The theme of seeing God is also interesting here the way that 
we have to take the fact that we are children of God very much primarily as a fact of faith. It takes a lot for us to recognize that we are the children of God in the full weight of that. We don't know what we're going to be yet. Um, that's still a mystery. But at this moment in time, we must take this wondrous truth by faith. Faith, And there's the way that John expresses this. There is a reminder, this is in fact true. And that is what we are. Um, that readers who might be surprised or incredulous at this particular fact and even within our hearts even though we know it to be true there's something within our hearts that wonder could it indeed be true that we are the children of God but there is a confidence to be found that faith um, can grasp hold of this that faith can see this in anticipation of sight when Christ appears we will be like him for we shall see him as he is and that as we are children of God that sonship will be revealed in a far more real sense, in a far fuller sense, as we bear his full likeness. But yet in this moment in time, by faith, we can grasp hold of that. And that leads to a, a hope. And it's also an awareness of the love of the Father. And it brings together the, the three um, Christian virtues in a tight unity. The logic of this is also very interesting, because there's two ways that it could be misinterpreted. One is to say, um, we don't know if we're really the children of God. We don't know what the future holds for us. And and that kind of doubt is a good thing, because that kind of doubt makes us want to strive for holiness, so that maybe somehow we can attain to, to truly being the children of God. That's, that's one way some people have tried to motivate godliness. You better purify yourself because you're uncertain can't really have an assurance of your salvation and an assurance of your future because assurance would make you lax. So that's one way to go wrong. The other way to go wrong would be to say, oh, I'm obviously so assured of my, of my future that I don't need to be concerned particularly about striving for holiness and striving for purity. But John doesn't allow us to take either of those options. He says, we are the children of God. We know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him. We are, we are confident that that's our future. And then he says, and if you have that hope, then you purify yourself. So he doesn't allow us to say, well, because we know this to be, to be our certain future, therefore we can, we can be lax in our, in our battle against sin and, and so on. Rather, because this is our future, because we have this hope by faith, Therefore, we are diligent. We're not diligent to, to obey God and to, be, and to try to purify ourselves because we're uncertain, but because we have this, this faith-based confidence, we also strive toward it. We'll probably move on at this point to a discussion of the final passage for this week, which is Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 to 17. And for some readings, it's from verse 9 following. The initial verses of this chapter concern the response to the prayer of the, um, the prayer of the martyrs. And there is the holding back of the four winds of the earth. So the winds do not blow until the sealed of Israel have been gathered. 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And the 144,000 are associated with 12 tribes. And each tribe has 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's a full sum of that particular tribe. Times 12 equals 144,000. This represents the full complement of the body of Israel in preparation for the Day of Judgment and the coming of judgment in AD 70, I think, is what is in view here. And the ordering is interesting as well. Dan's not mentioned, for instance. We don't have Ephraim, we have Joseph. And I suggest that um, we should be seeing this in terms of the order of the different doors or gates of the city that we have at the end. The gates are ordered in terms of east, north, south, west at the end of Revelation. And here I think we have the tribes associated with Leah at the top in the east and or in the east, and then we have the handmaids towards the north, and then we have the younger sons of Leah towards the south, and in the west we have the sons associated with Rachel, Manasseh, Joseph, and Benjamin. As we move beyond this initial vision of the sealed of Israel, we can connect this with passages like um, Ezekiel 9 has already been mentioned, going throughout the city and marking those in preparation for judgment who are mourning at the state of Israel. And it also can be associated with the event of the Passover, setting apart a group of people who are marked out before judgment falls. And it can finally be connected to the high priest who has a mark on his forehead, a mark of blessing and holiness to the Lord where um, the wicked are marked out by the curse. Later on, we'll see the mark of the beast as a contrast to the mark that God puts upon his people. And those two marks setting apart groups of people, one for judgment, one for blessing. But after this, we see the entrance of a great multitude. When Israel went out of Egypt, Israel was accompanied by a, a mixed multitude. And here we see a mixed multitude too. A multitude no, no one can number. We've already seen a numbering of Israel. Now this is a countless multitude from every nation, all tribes, peoples and languages. And they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white and worshipping. And we see a number of these different cycles within the book of Revelation. There's visions, as it were, that anticipate the end. So we have one here in chapter 7, we have one later on in chapter 14 with the harvesting of the earth, and we have one later on with the defeat of the Whore of Babylon, the dragon, and Satan. And when we get to that point, there's a, a full realization of the end. At this point, it's an anticipation. It's drawing us out musically towards that point, but we haven't yet arrived yet. And so there's worship within heaven. And we see this worshiping de developing over the course of the book. This occurs after the opening of the seals. The next one will occur after the, op after the blowing of the trumpets. And this worship in heaven gives us an insight into the way that things are in God's throne the way that the angels and the redeemed humanity relate to each other. So, for instance, we have the angels being led in some sense 
by the great multitude. The great multitude begins the worship. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the angels respond to that, which might suggest a change in the ordering of worship in heaven as the righteous are brought up. Later on, we see a reference in verse 12. There's a sevenfold blessing blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might, sevenfold to God. And this is then followed by the questioning of who these people are. These are the people who have come from the great tribulation and washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. And now they are being prepared for worship. We've seen the priestly themes already with the name written on the forehead, and now we see people actually engaged in priestly worship in the context of the liturgy in heaven. Yes, as you say, there is a change, I think, in heaven. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we see that the, uh, the four living creatures lead in worship. And, and the 24 elders are responding. And then the second song, we have the, uh, the four living creatures and the elders singing together and the angels and other creatures responding. Um, but now we have these people leading and the angels and the living creatures respond. I think that's, that's the kind of change that uh, uh, Psalm 8, as, as it's interpreted in Hebrews 2, indicates that, that man was made for a little while lower than the angels to be crowned with glory and honor. And, and you see that with Jesus for a little while lower than the angels and then exalted over them. And that transition has taken place here in Revelation so that now the heavenly worship is being led by people. Um, God's goal is not just to be worshipped by angels, but to have, have his people exalted over them as his, as his sons and daughters. So here they are changing heavenly worship. And even they're picking up some of the things that the... Uh, that the living creatures and the angels sang earlier, blessing, glory, wisdom, and, and honor, and power, and might, and so on, are all associated with an earlier song. They're in a different order here, but it's much the same thing. Um, sorry, that's actually the, the angels singing this back again in, in a different way now here in verse 12, and they sang it in different orders than they sang it earlier. The song of the, uh, the, song of the nations the multitude from the nations is interesting to look at. It's, it's really a version of the word Hosanna. Um, Hosanna means save, please. The uh, Hosan part means save, and the na is usually what an inferior says to a superior when he's asking for something. Um, in John 12, we have... Jesus' triumphal entry, and they're waving palm branches, as they are here, and they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. So they're calling upon the Son of David to be the one through whom this salvation comes. And now, we're on the other side of that salvation, the other side of the cross, and the other side of the, of the great deliverance from, from persecutors and so forth that has taken place. Jesus has been brought out of the Great Tribulation. And now that salvation has been accomplished. It's not save us, please. It's, it's praise for salvation. Um, salvation to our God is literally what it says. 
that's kind of a compact way of saying something like, let salvation be ascribed to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. Or we might say more like this, we praise you for saving us. So it's the same John who's writing the Gospel and Revelation. It's the same Jesus, the same palm branches, you could say. And in some ways, it's the same crowd. Um, this multitude from every nation then includes those 144,000 from Israel. And they are now all waving their palm branches as a gesture of praise. And as they're doing so, they're not crying out for salvation anymore, but they're declaring that, that God and the Lamb have brought them salvation. And as we look further on in the book, we can see many of these themes are brought out on a fuller level, as I already mentioned, within um, chapters 21 and 22, as we see, for instance, the the throne of God established. We see the um, city with the different gates that are marked out by the names of the tribes. We see the worshipping God day and night in his temple, the presence of God, no more hunger and thirst and removal of all tears and the lamb being present and guiding people to living waters. And so at this very point, we already have that anticipation. And I think it gives us a sense, as we've been looking through First John as well, this and in Matthew, this sense at this moment in history, there's already an anticipation of what is taking place, what will take place in the future. I think it ties in. It's not as clear as it ties into the, the other readings, the, the Gospel reading from Matthew, for instance, but I think it does tie in, at least in, in this way, that, that Jesus, when he begins his ministry, is proclaiming certain people to be most happy, to be in the best possible position because of what's coming. It doesn't mean that, that it's just good to be mourning all day long, 24-7, for every, for every Christian through all of history. Jesus is talking in particular to people at a certain time, at the time when he's announcing that the kingdom is near and telling them that those who are mourning over the state of Israel, those who are poor in spirit right now, who are dependent upon God and so forth, they're about to receive this great transition, this great change that's going to result in great joy for them. And what we and the, the joy is the kingdom. They're going to receive the kingdom and all of its benefits, seeing God, as, as John picked up on in 1 John 3, um, all those benefits are going to be theirs. And and now that we come to this passage in Revelation, we're kind of seeing the fulfillment of all of that. Um, Jesus says in Matthew, you're most blessed, most happy, because this is about to happen. And now we see the, uh, the great crowd celebrating because they've inherited the kingdom. And when John is asked, it's interesting because the, the elders say, yeah, John, who are these wearing white robes? In a sense, that's, that's saying to us as the readers, you ought to know by now who these people are, and we ought to be able to figure it out. And John should be able to figure out. He knows, but he says, my Lord, you're, you know. And the elder says, these are the ones who survived, who've come out of the time of great distress, great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' blood cleanses them from all their all their sin. But then, you have a description of how they stand before God's throne. And uh, Jim Jordan makes the, the claim, 
it can be substantiated that the, the seven days of creation are all reflected here in one way or another. They worship the Lamb, they worship God, day and night in his temple, and that ties in with day one of creation, where day and night are first created. Um, then it says that the, uh, the one who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Now, some translations don't reflect that exactly that way, but it's the idea of God's tent being spread over them. And the firmament is, is associated with a tent, firmament created on day two. The scripture is associated with a tent. This is also a picture of marriage here. God's tent stretched over them is, is like a marriage them, like Boaz spreading his wing over Ruth, or God spreading his wing over, over Israel in Ezekiel 16. Uh, to commit adultery in, in Deuteronomy is to uncover your father's wing by going into your father's wife, for instance, is one form of it, that it takes in, in Deuteronomy. So this is a day two theme, the, the tabernacle. Then they will not hunger or thirst. And of course, day three is the day in which we get the food plants, the, uh, the grain plants and the fruit trees. Um, the sun is not going to beat down upon them. Again, the sun is day four. A little less clear for day five, but we have the lamb in the center with a bunch of things gathered around him, which, uh, which Jordan associates with the, uh, the swarms created in day five. And then we get the, uh, the springs of the waters of life. So we have man being put into a, a Garden of Eden-like place, uh, which happens, of course, on day six, the creation of man then put into the garden. And then tears wiped away. Uh, Jordan associates with a, a Sabbath theme, a, a theme of rest. Um, all the mourning that they've had, blessed are those who mourn, they end up being comforted here at the end. And the comfort is that they receive the, uh, a completely new creation. The seven days of creation are reflected here. And these people who have come through this tribulation, the, the faithful in Israel and the, the whole mixed multitude that is joined with them, have received all these benefits of a, of a brand new creation, a, a whole new seven days of creation, as it were, and all the benefits of the kingdom that Jesus had promised them. At the beginning of the Revelation of John, we see the color white very strongly associated with Christ, the dazzling whiteness of his hair, and um, the um, whiteness of his head as well. This whiteness is also expressed in the whiteness of the robes and we talked earlier about the way that when we see Christ we'll be like him and in part what's taking place here is the character of the lamb being that which marks out his people too so they are marked out in a priestly way in the way that they have the name of God upon their foreheads of the 144,000 we also have the white robes and we have those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, made white through that. And so here I think we see another connection with First John and the way that the character of Christ is one that is taken on by his people as they are made to bear his mark, to be marked out by his character. Yes, I think 
sometimes we, we think of the whiteness of the robe simply in terms of justification. Um, so our robes were dirty and filthy, but were forgiven because of Jesus' suffering and death, and therefore now our robes are white. But certainly when we come to Revelation 19, we see the bride, um, her white garments, it says, that represents the righteous, the righteousness, the righteous deeds of the saints. So perhaps we shouldn't just see justification here, but also um, also sanctification, also the, the purification of, um, of the believers. Jesus, of course, bore our sins in his body to the tree that we might not just be forgiven, what Peter says is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the blood of Christ is not just the basis of our forgiveness. It's also what then results in our own, our own sanctification, our own purification, our, our beginning to live in righteousness. Um, and this would tie in with, with what we read in 1 John, that because we have this hope, we purify ourselves. So we who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb... Um, through the robes have been washed, and the robes represent us, of course. But we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We go on to purify ourselves. We go on to do the righteous deeds, to, uh, you know, to turn from sin, because we have this hope of seeing God. We have this hope of inheriting all these blessings, of being in the presence of God, and so forth. And that conformity to Christ is also seen in the fact that these are people who come from the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation which is associated with the blood of the Lamb, but also with the blood of the saints, that they shed their own blood. And we see this throughout the book of um, Revelation, that the righteous suffer with Christ and suffer in some sense like Christ, not just have Christ suffer for them, but throughout the book, the righteous are conformed to Christ as they share in his sufferings in anticipation of sharing in his vindication. And that purification of ourselves, that identification with the tradition of the prophets, those whose blood has been filled up within this cup of the, of the harlot city, we identify with that blood. And as we are identified with that blood, we are also identified with the blood of Christ that cleanses us all. Do you have any thoughts, Alistair, about the palm branches? I mean, we, we associated that with the, uh, the triumphal entry and the cry of Hosanna. I, I think um, in passing, Jim Jordan mentions some connection with the Feast of Tabernacles but doesn't really expand upon that. I'm sure there's a whole lot more that could be said about that. But tabernacles is associated with the ingathering of the nations also, isn't it? It is. We also have um, passages like um, Exodus 15, where it talks about Elim with the 12 wells of water and the 70 palm trees, and the 70 being associated with the number of the nations in Genesis. I wonder whether here there is the fact that this is a mixed multitude uh, surrounding the 12, um, whether that 12 is associated with the wells of water, and here the palm trees are associated with 70, which are the people from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. 
Southwick, if you had the 12, vastly expanded with 144,000, and then the 70 vastly expanded with this innumerable number. That's interesting. And there is a tabernacle connection in this context um, with the verse 15, spreading this tent, spreading the tabernacle over them. I seem to remember um, Dr. Lightheart in his commentary on Revelation has also connected the name Tamar with um, Palm and wonders whether that's something that's at play here as well. But I'd have to refer to it again to be sure. I think the most likely connection for me is one with the, the Palms and the Nations. which then would connect with the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is also the one where Israel offered offerings for all the nations. The, uh, the 13 bulls one day and 12 the next and so on to a total of 70. So there's a, the, the sort of anticipatory prayer for the ingathering of all the nations at the Feast of Tabernacles, and here we see this great multitude gathered, associated with the kinds of branches that they would have made the, the tabernacles, the booths, out of at that feast. And that connection with the Feast of Tabernacles and the ingathering of the nations is quite pronounced at the end of Zechariah and places like that. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.